Hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome back, feasters. Our headlines today include UFOs and the new religion, blindfolded in the desert, angels on earth. These are just some of the topics you'll hear today while we cover the book by Diane Pasolka, American Cosmic. So what do you think? Are you excited? A lot of great headlines. Whoa. Yeah. So there's a lot to cover in this book. This book was so huge. It was like, okay, I, I, I will say that like the first half of the book was more interesting than the second half of the book. So I don't know if it's a combination of like my notes. I just got more tired of taking notes, but like every chapter I took less and less notes. But I honestly, I think it's because I was less, I was less invested in what was happening because it just, I think she started out with the really engaging, intriguing information at the beginning. And, uh, it, and I, I was totally like enveloped that whole time. And I was writing down so much stuff. I took like, 28 pages of notes. I couldn't even believe it when I went back through it. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Jeez, Sydney. That's a lot amazing. Of notes. Remind me of the author's name. Diane Pasolka. Diane Pasolka? Yeah. She goes by, in the book, she goes by D.W. Pasolka. So I think I'm just going to refer to her as Pasolka for the for the sake of the book. You know, because some people, they as authors, they don't like to reveal their first name because like if they're revealed as a feminine name or whatever, they might be less likely to be taken seriously, that kind of thing. Oh, so like she can trick people into reading the book because they won't know right. it's a woman. That's yeah, exactly. ridiculous that you have to do that. But so did, you get, really did you is. get an impression that she may be part of the reason why the last half was not as engaging was because she kind of couldn't tell us a lot of the details of what she had discovered? I definitely think that is one thing. What's kind of sad is that the book didn't have much of a conclusion. It started out like really engaging about this specific story, which we'll get to, um, that happened in New Mexico in like a place where she wasn't even sure where she was. She was actually blindfolded when she was brought there. And so like that already has my attention because it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And then after the first couple chapters, it she like, she goes off into these tangents. It really, it reads like a fiction book, like a story, like she's telling us a story. It's not like a textbook where she's just spewing information at us. Um, she has tons of tangents where she's like, you know, it reads as if like Diane is the main character and we're seeing her life through her eyes. And so I thought it was really cool in that sense. And it, it almost made me like step back and be like, wait, is this, is this a nonfiction book? Is this or real? <laughs> yeah. Is, like, we're always going to question what's real. Right, right. It start, It read as like a fiction book and I was really into it. And then as she kept going off into these tangents, I started losing track of like what the whole point of the book was. And I kind of feel like she did too. Because by <laughs> the end, it was like, I there was nothing, nothing had been confirmed. She was just like, here's what I did. The end. <laughs> and then it's well, like, wait, what? Well, that reminds me of where a lot of UFO and supernatural investigators go. They go around in circles and they yeah. find out so much, but the ultimately the phenomenon eludes us until yeah. unless you get really swallowed up by it, like you get killed by it or or you get taken somewhere or or you go insane. A lot of people right. go insane or or they just immediately go into the cash grab mode with it. And, and they really didn't have much of an experience with, with anything supernatural. It's hard 
I think, to wrap your mind, even for me, like the amount of every time I read a few UFO books, like I need to stop for a couple books because I yeah. feel myself, my head hurting a little bit. And totally. I'm like, it's a little bit too strange. And it's so out of the realm of our reality as human beings, yeah. thankfully, right now, that you need to take breaks from thinking about this. So I can imagine as an author kind of going down a rabbit hole and maybe wanting to stop. But do you think that maybe there's a sequel in the works? Is that why maybe it's it's leaving us where it is? I guess it's likely. You know, what's funny is when I was first looking for this book. So this book was written, uh, she started it in 2012 when she began this study um, about the comparison between like extraterrestrial or non-human intelligence and religion and how they compare and like the technology of religion. Um, And so that's how she started. And this was like a six-year study that she did. And then she published this book in 2019. So it's very recent, actually. Yeah. So this was, yeah, over the course of six years that this book was written and some of her profound experiences from that six-year study. Um, So it is likely that there are two is to be a sequel. But I will say, um, when I was looking to uh, acquire this book, I was looking on Amazon and I was looking at some of the reviews and there's this great big long review that like is written by someone who's knowledgeable of the phenomenon because they refer to a lot of uh, a lot of people, which so does Pasoka, by the way. And we'll we'll cover tons of people that are also interested in the phenomena or like from the 17th, 16th, 15th century who used to be involved great. in it and wrote cosmologies. Um, but he refers to like Carl Jung and, and a lot more like contemporary uh, writers and authors of the phenomena. And uh, he, he says that this book was like a drag, that it was completely boring. There was no point to it. By the time he finished it, he was like, why did I even read this? And so I, I actually really enjoyed his review, but I didn't quite agree because I thought the book was A, really well written, um, B, very informative. But like he said, it ends and you're just like, what it, What am I left with? Like, what did I actually learn? I don't feel like anything has progressed in proving or disproving the phenomenon. So, Well, I'd like to honor the authors, unless we come across books that are from crazy people where we have to totally <laughs> shit all over them and laugh at them. Right, uh, right. I, would, I don't want to honor the author uh, at some level, but I, but I understand. Um, why don't you take me in to that moment in the beginning. Like describe yeah. to me, let's start, or oh, I don't know where you plan on starting, but I would like to hear what you mean by this. What is this blindfold business that happens mm. in the beginning? That's like yes. the beginning of the insider where, where Al Pacino, <laughs> I think it's blindfolded. So yeah, blindfolded in the desert was one of my headlines, but I do have like some introduction stuff to cover okay, first, okay. and then that'll be the first story. I want to so, hear that. I want you to take right. me through that moment. That sounds okay. awesome. All right, so this book, as you already know, is about UFOs, religion, and technology. Pasoka began studying in January of 2012 after inheriting an extensive library of UFO resources herself. That's why she got engaged in it at all. Um, So the goal of this book that she wrote was to document a new religious form, basically how galactic visitors can be viewed as gods to human beings. Okay? So like a new spiritual uh, paradigm, like a new... A new religion through exactly. UFOs. Yep, exactly. That's exactly wow. what her goal was. Yeah. So again, like I said, the story is not linear whatsoever. It hops all over the place. It's going to seem very random, but I wanted to cover some basic. This is some stuff that she just talked about in the introduction before she really started getting into it. Um, so Pasoka um, was originally a scholar of religion and Catholic history. 
So a lot of her background before, prior to, to getting into the UFO phenomenon um, was about uh, Catholicism and, you know, how religion affected today's modern society and so on and so forth. Um, she speaks about three different types of UFO studies. So one, there are those who are public ufologists. Uh, then there are academics who write, and that's all they do. And then there's also what um, a term that Alan J. Hynek actually um, developed called the Invisible College. And this is a group of private scientists who are not out. They don't release their name. They're not on social media. Nothing about them is seen. Like, probably even their their husbands and wives at home don't even know what they do for a job, right? I think Jack Vallee has a book called The Invisible College. Oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, she, like I said, Pasolka refers to Jacques so many times. And actually, the introduction of her book is about um, going on like a tour with him in Silicon Valley. Um, so she she met him in person and they they know each other by name. Um, she also loves referring to uh, 2001 Space Odyssey movie and, and the X-Files. Um, Dude, I you know. love this woman already. <laughs> I know, right? She, I yes. want to hang out with her and <laughs> I'm kind of worried because I might fall in love with her. Um, <laughs> She's pretty foxy. I don't know. Oh, she is a foxy UFO investigator. Cool. Yeah, but she's you know you know she's a religious studies professor turned UFO uh, ufologist. Well, I, I, I mean, don't even you, think she'd refer to herself as a ufologist. Well, you know the interesting thing. See, I don't see myself as someone who's a UFO nut either. Like the interesting right. thing about this topic is that we are trying to figure out what is going on on other levels of current existence uh, beyond the planet, yeah. the intergalactic relationships that species have together. We're trying to look into, and to say there's no evidence, this is nonsense, all comes from a place of like not looking at any of the stories or books or anything that has been written about right. this. Because if there were no interactions, if there were no crazy hiccups where people encounter each other and things and weird things, uh, then there would be no mountains of information to look at. And these mountains yeah. beg us to question uh, our, our it, it for me, it, it makes me for me, it very much makes me not question my faith because now there's now there's something other than God and humans and whatever. Like for me, it. It makes me truly, it, it has, for me, it has energized my faith because suddenly I realized that there's this cosmic order to the universe. There's different forms of governments on different planets. There's different forms of society. It's like anthropology all over again, except we haven't ruined everything with iPhones. Like it's, <laughs> it, there's, there's different versions of how to form these pyramids among beings yeah. and and where do the spiritual levels flow? I mean, once we start looking at the crosses, the bridges between physical reality and spiritual reality, then we will start to see, well, where do aliens fall in this realm? Because aliens might be, some of them might be creatures that have lived so long, but they're still tied down by physical reality. And they're trying their hardest to figure out what we would want to figure out if we lived thousands of years, which is eternal life. Like you want eternal life, eternal toys. You want technology to keep spiraling upwards. And then eventually, you know, we want the best clothes, the best things until we end up like naked, gray, 
like having mind sex with each other and like <laughs> and like capturing humans in our spaceships. Like we're looking at maybe where 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 do creatures fall on the physical spectrum across the universe? Where do they fall on the spiritual spectrum? And are there are there other beings who who also shepherd and foster the spiritual layers of everything? I mean, the spiritual layers of everything are sort of where where I, what I believe it's like the negative. It's the negative energy of everything. So like we see, we see everything kind of get used and spent as far as physical energy and everything dies and goes through this funnel of physical reality. And then what is, what's happening on the other side? And there's definitely this weird relationship where I don't believe energy is wasted. So I can totally see how spiritually this is relevant now. It's very relevant to me spiritually. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm really, wow, I'm so I'm really glad you excited. said that. That was at, at first when you started going, I was like, wow, this is a crazy tangent. But I, I you brought it back around there. And you, you, yeah. yeah, I think you were talking about your own spiritualism and how it connects. And yeah, your ex- personal experiences have gone through to see that, oh, wow, there is really a connection between this, which I hadn't even thought about either until right. I read about Diane's. It, it this takes book, so. it takes time. And it's not about it's not about worshiping things that are more technologically advanced than us because it it wouldn't be so hard to imagine. I mean, if we, we would not want to worship ourselves if we could go back in time or if we met time travelers, right? Like it's not about worshiping something more advanced than you are, but it is about kind of knowing like what, what beings have, have discovered things about maybe God or about reality that, that Mm -hmm. we have yet to learn. What do we have yet to learn? So, it's exciting for me. I mean, I think that road is the most exciting road. Cool. Um, this is great then. This is great. So this is so she kind of goes from Catholic studies and and what she believes she has interacted with the Invisible College or um she, not yet, but that's part of what this six-year okay. study is. So she does okay. meet some people and we will learn about them. Yeah. Where does the study come from? Is it sponsored by a university? Is it just for the book? Oh, that's a good question. She didn't specify. Um, there is a later portion of the book where she is sponsored by her college to go on a religious study to the Vatican, but she also uses that as an excuse to look further into UFO studies and combine her work. Um, so it might be one of those things where like, she's sponsored to do religious studies and then also just kind of combines it with her own nice. wants and beliefs. So. Who knows? Like, but. Thank you. Thank you, Vassar, for sponsoring uh, <laughs> UFO studies. Or exactly. exactly. Sorry, Vassar. Just whichever college. Uh, did I just apologize to a college? We're, we're kind of getting our rhythm here. With, with, with <laughs> Maybe they can become our, our official sponsor, too. Nice. Vassar, Brought we're waiting you. for you. <laughs> Brought to you by Vassar College. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, Pasoka refers to the X-Files. She, she says, the quote, the truth is out there and how this can be commonly misconceived because no, the truth is somewhere, but it's not here. It's not right now. It's not postponed. It's what she refers to as future real. It's something that does exist. We just aren't able to prove it yet. So it's not that the truth is out there. It's not somewhere, but it is somewhere. It's not here, <laughs> not now, not postponed. It's just future real. So I, I like that term, future real. Future real is very cool. Yeah. 1947 is kind of when the term UFO took off. Um, she's specifically referring to a pilot named Kenneth Arnold who saw nine saucers over Mount Rainier one day. 
Um, this is during the Cold War. He was the first one to develop the idea of what we know as the modern UFO. Even though it's been around for thousands of years, this is just kind of when the, the modern phenomenon took off. Um, so she also refers to a poll um, from 2009 called the Harris Poll um, that confirmed that 32% of Americans believe that UFOs exist. And then now... More than half adults believe that UFOs exist, and 75% of young Americans believe that they exist. You know, there's just this, this consensus that, uh, that, uh, no that opinion. You, can just, you can just say these, had, these Pentagon can come out with this information yeah. now, and people are so overwhelmed with the way the state right. of the world is in right now that they're not really they're just, paying attention. I, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, that, so, though. I, I love that people believe it. I mean, it's true. Right. Pasoka said that this, um, these percentages are actual rival to belief in God. You know, it's like how, how, probably similar to the, the percentage of people who, ha, you know, follow a religion and, and believe in a God or gods. She also brings up a term called epistemological shock. Uh, this is actually termed by John Mack, but she brings it up. She's, it, it's basically talking about that aha moment that changes your own fundamental understanding of the world and your beliefs. Um, so again, that's epistemological shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this this can again happen in religion as well as strange phenomena that we have no knowledge of yet. So that <laughs> might be that might be what I've referred to you. What I've told you often is was my experience with believing in this. Yes. Once I once I went through once I realized this was real, I went through that shock for a period yep. of days, and I was like, I felt physically ill. Actually, yeah. Yep. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. Um, so again, this is just the last kind of uh, summary to the introduction. Um, Diane ha- meets Jacques Vallée and they go on this tour in Silicon Valley and they're just talking and discussing uh, life in general. But she, Dude, she that's took a, a lot buddy of, cop. That's a buddy I, cop movie. I want to see. I know. Right. <laughs> she took rocking. a lot of great information from him, though. And we already talked about Jacques Vallée in the first episode uh, in his book, Passport to Magonia, which is way outdated now compared to well, the we're other stuff only that he scratching written. the surface of that exactly. man's work but yeah right guess what uh she actually confirmed that he was a consultant to steven spielberg in that movie close encounters for the third kind in 1977 Beautiful. so they they based that scientist off him with his knowledge so you were totally right about that i had to bring that up that um we uh david mentioned that in the first episode i knew that cosmic boomerang would come back at us exactly so um jack always considered his study of UFOs to be his hobby. It was never like his life's work or anything. It was just something that he found interesting and he did on the side. It was always his hobby. Um, really? Yeah, that's that's what she said. He said, I don't know. So Jacques Vallée <laughs> is just so cool about this stuff. Right. He just, just chilling. Well, it's not what he, he does famous, to make money off of. He know? was famous for being a, uh, he, I mean, he was famous for, I mean, he was hired by NASA to do their computer software for the whole Mars, for Mars, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about some of the other stuff that he did later that he did get paid to do. But like that still didn't have anything to do with his UFO studies. So that's basically what he's differentiating, though. he, Though his UFO studies and knowledge has gotten him jobs other places, his UFO knowledge is a hobby that he hasn't made any money, Terry. It's not how you pay the bills. Yeah, it's not how you pay the bills. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Um, she said that Jacques often frustrates many scientists um, who are involved in UFO studies by never agreeing to a certain explanation. He's he's never specific enough in what in what he states. And whenever he's confronted with an opinion, he always has a reason to debunk it, even to debunk his own claims. He'll he'll say like, so maybe they do exist. But on another level, they might not exist. You know, he just he never is. He's never a man who like makes a decision or has an opinion. He always sees both sides of the spectrum. That would be frustrating. He he claims that the phenomenon seems infinitely variable. So, yeah, I can imagine how that'd be frustrating too. But it, in the end, Pasoko takes from his, from what they talked about, is that his message is always, you are not alone. So while that's not stating that there is or there isn't, it's just the fact that we are not alone, that these sightings are okay. only a window into another dimension. Right. Jack believes that the phenomenon is in direct relation to how the spirit and the body are separate. This is something that Pasolka refers to as mind-body dualism. We were just and talking about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. The interdimensional hypothesis. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Everything we um, can't see. The space in between, you know. The space in between. We're gonna get into our first story now. This is the uh, the trip Great. to New Mexico that I mentioned, being blindfolded in the desert. Um, Pasolka and her friend. James, who is a UFO researcher. I assume that James is just what she's referring to him as because there's no last name with that. She just like, he's just James. So I think he's part of the Invisible College. Pasolka and her friend James, a UFO researcher, were blindfolded for 40 minutes and taken to a no-fly zone in New Mexico. I I was like questioning. I was like, well, is this like Roswell, New Mexico, like Area 51? Right, is it a military base? Right, right. So the person bringing her there referred to this place where he was taking them as the sacred place where non-human intelligence was first descended from the sky to reveal itself to us. Also, by the way, um, any type of non-human interaction that descends from the sky and reveals itself to humans is called a aerophony. And that's spelled like like my air, H-E-I-R-ophony, uh, O-P-H-A-N-Y, aerophony. I think that's how it's pronounced. So these are terms that come from religious studies. That's what I was just going to say. Yes. So this is something that during every experience that Diane has, she tries to compare it to, well, what's this like in the Bible? Or from my knowledge of religious studies, when has this also occurred in? in I love how she's, is she trying to, is she trying to change our vocab? She'll be like, no, that would be an aerophony. I'm going to be like, (laughs) no, bitch, that's an alien coming from the sky. (laughs) We're not calling that an aerophony, okay? Yeah, she's like, we have a term for that here. It's called aerophony. Aerophony. It's when I the gods rubbish. appear. It's when the gods appear in golden, in golden robes, and they open them up and reveal a lack of genitals shining in the air. <laughs> and they go, "Would you like a watch?" <laughs> they go, um, Gucci, so- Gucci, <laughs> Gucci. That's funny that you say that. Actually, um, I'm gonna bring that up later. Uh, consumerism, tourism. Uh, almost always follows something that that occurs like an aerophony. Uh, so Pasolka was actually surprised to find that when she got out of the car and her blindfold was taken off, it was not full of tourists. They were completely alone, stranded on a desert. Typical type that she was expecting of tourism was in Roswell. They have a festival every year, and now it's become so like niche that most people either ignore it or scoff at it, or they just attend it for fun. It's not really a place of... <laughs> Um, study where where like you know knowledgeable scientists can go and and discover well, they, anything they'd be that means late, anything. 
Yeah, they'd be late in the game if they exactly. hadn't moved their secret base from there already. <laughs> like maybe there, we should move go. our secret base from here. It, that actually made me remember. Um, what was it? I think it was like last year, maybe two years ago, when the internet like threatened to storm Area Fifty One. Do you remember that? Right. And like the government yeah. was like, "Don't fucking do it." <laughs> of course, it's so yeah. dumb. Like, right? There's, there's no way they hadn't moved that S one base out there. I love it. uh, I mean, even Bob Lazar was saying, don't go there. It doesn't make any sense. But (laughs) at the same time, and it was all started like this kid was just joking. Yeah. Um, And then it turned into a thing. But, you know, anything that brings us together on this and brings it out of the taboo zone is important. You know, I think it's so important for us to start having these discussions and to start educating ourselves on, on what's going on. Because honestly, I was thinking like even with the Pentagon reveal, like, I hope that they come out and give us something meaningful. Like, I hope that they come out and tell us, like, we did find craft. This exists. We can all be on the same page for that, at least. Yeah. Because other countries have done it ages ago, right? But we're not, we're not looking at France's activity as relevant to our own for some reason. Right. Um, but if the U.S. does it, it'll be a big statement. But at the same time, they're not going to go into details on anything. So for that, you'll have to come to us. And... <laughs> And sit down. And eventually we will have the in with the government feast with us. And honestly, we as human beings, we just have to start our own sources of information and our own our own relationships with the source of this material. Uh, God, I remember hearing once about like a party that these government officials were at and like somebody was there and like they were describing how there was an alien there, like at the party. Like a lie? It was tall too. And it was like tall and it was, and it was like literally the elephant in the room, but nobody was, nobody was freaking out about it. And this person was like, this person was freaking out about it, but nobody else was freaking out about it because it was such like a high up echelon party that, that, that it was normal for all these people to see this being there. Where did you read this? I don't even remember. I definitely heard it on Mysterious Universe somewhere. That's totally giving me ago. like Men in Black vibes. Okay, so but we're talking about how how this is there's a relationship with the higher ups in our society, the people with mm-hmm. money and mm-hmm. power have relationships with these topics that Diane is sort of discovering, right? So does she right. is she going out to an uh, archaeological site or is this yeah, like, is so this like the this... pyramids of the of the <laughs> the person the who brought her out here? Yeah, they they made her blindfold herself and James because this is a secret location that nobody can know how to get there. Um, so he drew he drove them out there. He also Diane explains like what they were wearing because she said that when they stepped out of the car, they felt ridiculous. They were like in these tall leather boots and winter puff jackets in the middle of a New Mexico desert because they were told that the wind chill can be so crazy that like they their bodies wouldn't be able to withstand it. Um, and then the, the person who brought them there, who we later find out is named Tyler, who I think is another member of the Invisible College, because, again, no last name, just Tyler. Actually, she calls him Tyler D, which is kind of goofy. Uh, but so Tyler D brings them out there and he's like in shorts and sunglasses. He just looks like another like Silicon Valley guy just hanging well, out. Well, whoever they are, they're connected to this a lot deeper than we are. Yes. They're connected yes. at a level of like, this is something they're working on. They're invested yes. in. They're a part of this, this world. So what is this world? So who's Tyler? So is Tyler smart. there? 
Yeah, Tyler. Tyler's the one who brought them. So Tyler brought Diane and and uh, James out to this okay. secret location. He's their Ooh. tour guide. He told them this actually did happen to be the film location for the opening scene of the final season of the X Files. So, so why it, are they blindfolding them if he's giving them clues? <laughs> I I don't know. You just thought, hey, here's a little piece of interesting information. Um, but the it, I'm going to start blindfolding a, people when I take them places just for dramatic <laughs> effect. <laughs> on date night, put the blindfold on, honey. Yeah. We're going to dinner. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so this ended up being the landing site of an unknown aerial object crash. Um, the ground was covered in tin cans. And Tyler said that this was actually planted by the government to offset too many people who were trying to come out finding remnants of artifacts. He said that the government came out and they planted all these tin cans to make people be like, oh, there's nothing out here for us, Um, which is exactly why they were out there. Because uh, a quote from Tyler, he said, the best place to conceal the truth is in a mass of confusion, (laughs) which I love. Uh, I thought that's great. Do you ever try to hide something and stick it in something else? Like you were trying to hide your bowl, I would like stick it in like a tissue box or something. Right. And then you, yeah, you get so clever that you forget where you freaking hit it. Yeah. And yep. no one ever comes to look for it. So you're no. like, all right. Exactly. So Pasoka basically concluded that she was standing at ground zero of this new religion that she was after. The birthplace of the UFO phenomenon. She speaks about how there's always a pawn in momentous sites like this. For example, like Noah and his ark. Um, and that this aircraft landing was the pawn to this ground zero site. Um, she said that there's more to learn about how James and Tyler's beliefs informed the creation of their own technologies, which we're going to talk about later. Um, so she stops here and then she goes off on this tangent about how she met Tyler and how crazy his freaking story is and how they got to where they are in the Ooh, desert. Exciting. So this is covering the headline of Angels on Earth. So in the New Mexico desert, this isn't a UFO landing from like the Puebla Indians or anything. This is a recent UFO. No. Well, no, like the 40s, 50s kind of kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a modern crash landing site okay. of, of what we know as modern UFOs. Yeah. And it's Correct. not it's not yep. a very so, famous crash or anything because it seems very secretive that they took them out there. I yeah, I would assume that it's not a famous crash. Um, I did. Pasoka does mention that Tyler uh, said that it was there was an entire craft that landed here, but the government took hold of it like immediately. And that's why they planted all those tin cans to like tell people like, oh, there's nothing out here. Don't worry about it. But they they came out here to see if they could find remnants of the art like artifacts, remnants of the. It's hard to imagine the government like going out there on like a tin can mission. I'm just picturing like, you know, um, some government official making the call and being like, all right, guys, I need you all to eat tuna for the next three months. We're going to gather up all these cans. We're going to drop them in the desert in New Mexico. It's just so... You don't need to be told why. Just start eating the tuna. It's so hard <laughs> and it's so stupid that they have to go to such great lengths to conceal stuff. Uh, there's this great book. I think it's called the um, 37th Parallel or something where this guy this guy gets an an artifact from a UFO and he sends it to a company to, he sends it to a, a, an organization that handles this kind of stuff and they never get back to him and they just steal his stuff. (gasps) Like there's like, of course, I mean, unless this material is like radioactive, which, which I I doubt all of it is. um, 
John Keel talks about how these metals and materials are often just like stuff that was materialized from earth uh, things. I mean, right. this ties into like the myriad of crazy things that Jack Vallee is referring to. Like this could be like just, interdimensional beings that are materializing using physical objects on this earth. And they just come together yeah. and they form like these freaking weird saucer crafts for their spirit, <laughs> for their spirit bags that are floating around. Um, spirit bags. But anyway, no, so. I, lo- I love everything that you're bringing up because everything that you're bringing up is like, I'm going to be mentioning this later, like the radiation and artifacts and whether or not they're man-made or from somewhere else that it doesn't, the material does not exist on earth. So great. Um, I love it. I love it too. So where do they where do where do where do they go from here when when they go to this site? What happens? Yeah. So Diane takes a little veer in the book here, and she backs up and she goes, "Okay, but this is how I met Tyler D. This random person who took who blindfolded her and took her out to the desert with her friend. This is how they met." So you ready for this? Because this is this is we get to find out who Tyler is. And you know what? When I read the first chapter and and like learned that this weird tour guide named Tyler Tyler took them out here, I was like, who is this fucking Tyler guy? And like I was just picturing like a pimply, redheaded, like 16-year-old boy that was like, I brought you out here, you know? And it like he just didn't seem credible at all. And then she like goes into the next chapter and is like, let's meet Tyler. Okay. And he is this insane person. Insane. He sounds like Tyler Durton. From Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just because I just really don't like that name, Tyler. No it one sounds like you, such a. You can't like that name. Yeah. No. Yeah, it just sounds like such a teenage, annoying kid name. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they met at a UFO convention, and Diane mentions that ufologists can't always speak about the stuff that they study about, even to each other. So there's like this code of silence. So even when they go to a UFO convention they're still just barely hitting the top of what their studies are and what they've been doing. They can't really tell you about what they've discovered or haven't discovered below the surface. So kind of like what you were saying before, um, this is all part of the invisible college. All these merits are kept secret. These people aren't, don't, they don't reveal their own identity, you know? So can you imagine going to a convention where it's like the whole point is to learn more about this stuff and they still can't say what they've been learning. Well, that's um, kind of cool because I think on the flip side, there's a lot of freaks that like think they know everything and probably talk about it a right. lot and are super obvious. So within that, those communities are also very serious personal researchers and people right. connected to cults and, and all kinds of secret organizations. So that's really cool. You know, it made me, made me kind of afraid of like, I would love for us to go to a UFO convention, but then we'd realize everybody there has a freaking UFO podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my <laughs> That's god. Like the last... I don't even think I, I bet they wouldn't even let people in unless you were like a verified researcher who, you know, had had a reason to be going there. Cause no. if they keep everything so? secret between each other, like I guess it I, I guess know. it depends on the nature of the convention. That sounds cool though. That sounds like right. something out of like a Coen Brothers movie, like some weird UFO convention. <laughs> um okay. Yeah. So, so, this so is they where met Pasoka there. met Tyler for the first time. Yeah. He he actually approached her. He knew her work on uh, Catholic religion and, and religious studies. And he offered her to join him on this trip to New Mexico. And immediately she was like super suspicious. She was like, uh, you want me to just go out into the desert with you, a random stranger? And he was like, yeah, pretty much. He's like, I'm going to show you something that no one else in the world will show you ever. And he and she's like, um, yee, red flag alert. So she, she asked if her friend James can join. And originally, 
he tells her, absolutely not. This is a one-man mission. Like, you either come with me or you don't go at all. And so she gives it a couple days, and she's, like, waiting. And she um, she finds out that Tyler was actually a, a previous government agent. He used, he used to work for the government. He was also an MMA fighter who switched his interest to the extraterrestrial after he left his government job. And he would show all of his, quote-unquote, friends this secret location, and he would film them while he showed them. He sent her, like, the longest text message ever, even imaginable. He sent her this text message while she was on a plane back home from the convention. And it was filled with all these casual videos of, like, well-known astronauts and generals and surgeons, venture capitalists, people who were all filmed with Tyler at this site that, like, they didn't know they were being filmed. He was just he was just filming them to, like, prove that he was hanging out with these people of known origin so he just has this blindfold take you to the desert like caravan business and i'm gonna film you yeah it like seems like the beginning of a snuff film right like it was giving me real creepy vibes i was like i hate this he sounds he sounds creepy like come on yeah dude what are you doing right so but but just wait so it turns out he used to work at a um for the government space program as an intern and he eventually became their engineer so you know after he explained explains all this information and shares all these videos, she's still unsure. And she's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Because like, if my friend can't even come, I don't feel safe just like going out with you. Um, So she does her own little research into Tyler and turns out he's several things, uh, a few of which are a biomedical engineer. So very intelligent man. He's a wealthy rocket scientist. He owns over 40 patents and actually works from home. He's an aeronautical engineer who gets paid to match up information to rebuild better spaceships. Wow. So that's pretty freaking cool, right? That is cool. Yeah. He's like, this is a this is a nerdy, nerdy guy who knows a lot of stuff and is a lot smarter than the first couple paragraphs that I read about thinking that he was gonna kidnap her. She starts, they start conversating and she's she's talking to him and he tells her that his pri- uh, his prior job with the government, he was actually a shuttle launcher for for NASA. He was really good friends with Judith Resnick, which if you know who that is, she was one of the astronauts who we lost um, on the Challenger after the Challenger crash. Uh, he was actually the last person to hug her before she went up in the Challenger. Thing. Whoa. And he launched that shuttle. Yeah. So that was extremely detrimental to him. And and his life took a complete turn after that. He had to quit his job. His wife filed for divorce. And after watching that crash, he just he like couldn't leave his home. He had to completely restart his career because he was like, I can't do that again. He developed heart palpitations. He became very depressed and just like completely lost in the world. Okay. And one day he picks up Carl Jung's book on the cosmos and space travel. And this is what uh, Diane likes to refer to as book encounters. And I think this is something that you, David, had um, with your John Keel book. Eventually, you're going to read a book, you're going to pick up a book, and you're going to read it, and it's going to put all of your prior experiences into perspective. It's going to blow your mind. It's going to cause epistemological shock, if, if you will. Um, epistemological shock. Th- this, that's right. That yeah, happened, that's happened to me was, with a number of books on these subjects. They've, sure, they've yeah, literally yeah, just exactly. found me. One of which was The Keepers. It's a book that literally just found me one day. Uh, I was on my yeah. way to a, I was walking home and I, instead I went the wrong way that I'd never gone. I just ditched all these, went down all these weird roads. And then I finally got to this used bookstore and there was this collection from this man who donates all of his books, this mysterious man who donates all of oh, his cool. books to this store. 
And I found this UFO book, which which we're gonna have to cover at wow. some point, which is really strange. Um. Anyway, so yeah, it's I, called the Keepers. It's called the Keepers. I, I, you know, I want you to read that book maybe because it's it's so bizarre. It's a guy named Jim Sparks cool. who has he's he's honestly his writing style the most non bullshitty writing style ever. Um, and he just love non bullshit. He just lays it out there and he explains his relationship to extraterrestrials, which is really weird. He's an abductee. Um, always, always controversial as far as whether people believe them, but I, you know, I always take it based on my instinct with, with how they write and how they present themselves. And, you know, you, you take everything in life with a grain of salt, but that was an amazing experience because I found that book. And actually in that book was the name of the, the, the rich man who uh, I imagine him as being like some weird Bruce Wayne type, like who was donating his books to this bookstore. Because I asked the bookstore guy, I'm like, where do these books come from? And he's like, they all come from the same man. And I was like, ooh, what? creepy. And like, and the in the key, in the keepers was the name of this man. And I yeah. I friended him on Facebook, and he had like no picture. And he never got back to me, but I never reached out to him. We'll have to find him at some point. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Wonder if he's part of the invisible college. <laughs> maybe, or, or he's, he's like one of us who stumbles upon, you know, one too many books on the subject until they're hooked. So she has a term for that. So the, the book finding you. Yeah. It's called a book encounter. Okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. The book finding you. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Tyler D has this book encounter with Carl Jung's book on the cosmos and space travel. And he was always a skeptic about the UFO phenomenon until this book. He read it every single night. He was finally able to sleep at night. This was just a huge turning point in his life. And listen to this. It opened up his pathways. It opened up something in the universe that allowed him to be approachable. And it changed his, you know, his depressed demeanor ever since this Challenger explosion um, wow. And what happened was randomly, listen to this, randomly, this general contacted him and asked him about being in an upcoming experiment and asked him if he would be a, a part of it. And he was like, oh, tell me what it's about. Because he's a smart man. He's a bio, biomedical engineer. That's why this general contacted him. And he was like, this is, this is when Tyler wasn't working anymore. So he was like no longer working. He wasn't even looking for a job. He's just a depressed man sitting at home reading this book about Carl Jung. And Tyler listens to the general and he's like, you know what? This, this experiment, it would work. And do you want to know why it would work? Because I've seen it. I've seen it work in a memory that I've had. Weird. And the general's like, this is crazy. So Tyler doesn't have a PhD. He's, he's not like, he doesn't have, you know, he, he didn't go to an extraordinary university. He's not a scientist. He's not a researcher. This, this guy is, is an engineer in the simplest forms, has nothing to do with like, you know, the scientific ex- explanations of non-human in- intelligence, right? But he has this memory. Well, he has degrees. Of, uh, he has degrees and everything. Right. He's, he's an right, engineer. Right, right, right. But the general, yes, but he, correct. But, and the general who was um, collecting people was looking, he was like basically saying like, oh, if you don't have a PhD, you can't be on this experiment. Oh, but he was so interested in, yeah, he was so interested in what Tyler had to say about having a prior memory of this experiment working that he was like, you know what? I'm just going to have you come on and try it out anyway. And it was a success. And this, actually, the success of this experiment, which they don't talk about what it was, but the success of this experiment led to an interrogation meeting that Tyler had with these generals where he was given his first patent. And then he had a revelation. He was like, oh, I'm able to use my memory to do good for the world. And so he retires at a young age. 
And then he just starts having another weird encounter after another. So um, here was another one. That, he's that on the cosmic. He's on the cosmic journey that that I want us yes. to be on. That I that I want exactly. our I want our listeners yes. to be on as well. Where you start taking an interest <laughs> in, you start being curious about these levels of the world, and and they start interacting with you. Right. Yes. Um. There's actually a quote. I'll read it off later because I, I have a, a great collection of quotes that Diane was putting in at the top of all our chapters. Um, and one of them is that once you're aware, they're aware. So once you're aware that they exist, they know that Ooh, you know. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. Um, so this is another weird encounter that happened to him shortly after, after he opened up his wavelengths to the universe and started being contacted. These two men in an airport passing by him, they hand him this card and they just walk away. And he's like, what the hell? And there's a number on the card. And just a number. So he calls it. And it's right. um, it's the space program. And they're basically saying, Tyler, we want you back, but we're going to put you in a different sector. You're not going to be in shuttle launching anymore. Um, we're going to put you in this in this weird, very top secret sector that no one can know about. Basically, where we're just going to put you in a room and we're going to let you think. OK, so he agrees. He's like, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> he returns. And then he was put in this room, a concrete room with a desk. He believes that he was actually connected at that moment to a source of off-planet intelligence. You know, this is like his first true encounter with something that he was still skeptical about, even after reading that book. Um, But he could feel the energy in this new facility that he was in. He was in the proximity of something that emitted energy and frequencies that changed the way he thought. Even though he was in this concrete room all by himself, just a desk and his own brain, he felt this energy coming in through the room and it was changing the way he thought. It controlled the way he thought. He said it felt like it zapped him with energy. And he started having all these memories of biomedical technologies and advancements and things that didn't quite exist yet. And he actually told Diane about a story about um, a woman who, uh, she was a mother of twins who had terminal bone cancer. And he used this biomedical technology that came from a memory that he had had at the molecular level to basically to change the language of the bone. And it completely cured her of her cancer. And she still lives to this day. He was like, he sent her a thank you note from that woman to show Diane. Be like, look, this really happened. Wow. Is that just the most insane thing you've ever heard? Yeah, it is. And I, at this point, I start going like, oh, my God, I got to meet this guy. Well, it starts to show you how enough of these stories form a narrative that you start to believe. You're like, OK, right. People this brilliant right. exist. These are the people that are woven into the fabric of our government on these secret levels. Exactly. You know, the, yeah. these are the Bob Lazars that kept their job, basically, <laughs> you know, yep. although we don't yep. know that Indeed. this guy got to see UFOs yet. But um, but these are these are these talented individuals, you know, the rogues. Yeah. So Diane actually starts talking about other historical um, people who who Tyler reminded her of. And I'm going to read a couple of them off to you because I think they're important people from, you know, this area of study that we are now finding ourselves in. Um, She said that the first person she immediately thought of when she started learning about Tyler and his history was a man named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. He was a Russian Soviet cosmonaut. He believed there were ethereal beings that were trying to communicate with him through symbols. Uh, One of the quotes that he said to her was that we are made as ethereal beings existing beyond one dimension of recognized reality. 
<laughs> right. And we're and, Basically, and sometimes we're being fed information from non-human intelligences. Exactly. That higher there are higher beings that are even beyond the ether that are reading our thoughts and they're sending us symbols to create technology, art, music. Basically, he he believes this is where creativity comes from, is that it actually comes from higher beings, which Diane can refer to as also what we call gods and saints. Uh, So basically, for Constantine, these symbols helped him develop rockets that could leave the Earth. And he he was a Russian cosmonaut, by the way. So he, you know, the Russians figured out how to get rockets launched before Americans did. So he was one of the first people in, in that. So pretty amazing. And he said that he was contacted by ethereal beings. Uh, another person. I mean, it, 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 uh, it uh, you know, when Stephen Pressfield in his War of Art has a beautiful section about where creativity comes from in terms of the gods and everything. But but it, it just it, it just folds into this concept where if you take it further, that everything has been sort of laid out for us so that we head towards a particular path. And maybe right. maybe it's yeah. maybe they're like these little grenades of creativity. So like we they can kind of observe what happens as we get inspired, you know, maybe there are nuggets that have to be in place so that they don't directly, if they're directly uh, giving us information that we're not, we're not creating it ourselves. So I think there might be some cosmic law there that prevents them from stepping in directly with us. That's yeah. I love that. So you already, you were already aware of where creativity comes from or, or what other people believe. I've heard this before, but it's it's something that's endlessly weird. Yeah, it's actually odd because Rogan on his podcast with Post Malone, they were discussing where creativity comes from and just how strange oh. it is. Um, you know, yeah. and and yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing thing to discuss. And and the fact that our it's not just our artists, but it's our scientists that are coming up with this is crazy. Yeah. Because where where did yeah. where did nuclear where did um nuclear physics come from? You know, where does quantum physics come from? Where are we getting this information from? Are we getting it fast enough? Are we not getting it fast enough? Um, Are we getting it too fast to the point where we're creating things that are way too dangerous? So, um, anyway. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's on the path that we're on. And this whole part of the book was, like I said, this was the most intriguing to me. She was listing off all of these names of people too. And so I was looking them up and like Googling them while I was listening. I did, I started the book as an audio book while I was waiting for it to be delivered to my library so that I could pick it up and read the rest of it. Who narrates <laughs> so I, it? I listened. I, um, I can't remember. It's not Diane it's, though. It's a woman. Okay. It's an actress. Or something. No, it's not okay. Diane. Cool. Yeah. I think her name was Judy. If I'm right. I don't. Yeah. Some actor. Uh, okay. So, Diane also, after comparing Tyler to Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, she also says, you know, there was an American version of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, and his name was Jack Parsons. Much more easy name to pronounce, much more American. He was an American researcher who actually collaborated with Aleister Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard, which if you don't know... (laughs) Now that is a buddy movie that I will die to see. (laughs) Holy crap. Uh, David, why don't you tell our, our listeners who, who Aleister Crowley is and L. Ron Hubbard, just if they don't already know. Well, I, you know, I just a brief, brief, brief description. Well, Crowley is a is a famous, um, you know, self-proclaimed dark magician. He's somebody who uh, was initiated into the Golden Dawn, a cult. Uh, he learned some of the Golden Dawn's techniques for 
uh, going through uh, the gateways of different dimensions. I mean, he definitely spawned his own. Um, he's he spawned his own following. I mean, you you were saying what Thelamina, um, yeah, all that good stuff. Crowley is a strange and dark figure. I mean, there's he had sex. He had sex magic that he was practicing. He was uh, probably murdering animals. If, any, if anybody knows, who knows? Um, if if anybody knows the original production of Sweeney Todd on Broadway with Michael Severus, he looks exactly like him. He's this demented, dark, creepy guy who's completely bald and just has like Ooh, pitless eyes. I like right? that comparison. <laughs> and El- and and yeah, he he founded the religion. It's called Thelema, by okay. the way. Um, Great. So he he identified he had identified himself as the prophet um, that was trusted to guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus. So there were, there, you know, it's just, and I can't wait to cover him more because there's just, it seems so interesting how there's so much, he was so smart in a lot of ways, you know, even though he went broke and whatever, like he was so smart in so many ways. And he seemed to have this noble intent with his, magic practices and i mean he look he's an individual who was like not only is this real but you can learn about this and you can you can yeah. you can create things with this i mean everything else about his life is absolutely crazy but <laughs> but but that's yeah we'll cover him more but then you you're talking about l ron hubbard the creator L. of hubbard. scientology scientology yeah exactly so two both like what we know of in american history as wackos right like weirdo wacko crazy people yeah but maybe maybe they're onto something. If American researchers are collaborating with them on ideas and how to how to move beyond our own human technologies, maybe they're onto something. So you have to look at it again with an open open mind. But it is giving you this initial feeling of like, oh, these are crackhead weirdos. Like, well, we don't want to be affiliated. Just with these just the fact that he named his book like Dianetics. Like, either he's the craftiest. Yeah fucking guy with his with his with his naming of his books or he really had his pulse on some fiber of truth with a lot of his stuff i had even heard somewhere that like he he had discovered like the meaning like a lot of the meaning of life or or he discovered a lot of the secrets yeah. of the universe but he decided to hold them back and obviously he created this religion that's super controversial uh, and he's extremely controversial i mean a science fiction writer right turned religious wizard of Oz man. Um, but, but, uh, but so how are all these people that they all met, they all met up for coffee or beer or what? No, no, no. So Diane is just making comparisons to Tyler. She's saying like, Tyler reminds me of Konstantin Sielkowski. Oh. She, she said he also reminds her of this American researcher named Jack Parsons who collaborated with Alistair Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard. So yeah. Um, so that researcher collibor- collaborated that researcher yes. collaborated with Ron Hubbard and Crowley. Yeah, there's. She didn't go in and into any more right. detail about okay. that. She's just basically trying to give you the image that she thought Tyler was a whacked out weirdo who just tur- happened to also be extremely smart. Okay. <laughs> but this Jack Parsons guy claimed he was in constant contact with extraterrestrial intelligence on special days of the year. Uh, if you didn't already know this, Jack Parsons had a tragic death at the age of 37 when a rocket exploded in his garage. Oh, um, wow. His wife, his wife actually, uh, there was a UFO sighting over the White House several months later that his wife attributed to his death. Um, so again, very connected with the spiritual world in that sense and, and non-human intelligence. But 
Uh, she and then here was another comparison that Diane made uh, was that uh, Tyler reminded her Tyler was a contemporary version of this man named Philip J. Corso. And Philip J. Corso was a colonel military agent who seeded private industry with crashed extraterrestrial crafts under Russian and Chinese technology. Basically, he used reverse engineering to put the U.S. ahead of Russia and China in rocket building. He wrote a book. Which is what we're um, honestly called- hoping exists so that we're, we have a way out of the mess that the world looks like it's on track for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He wrote a book called The Day After Roswell. And Roswell, as we all know. Oh, we're going to cover that book. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. 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 So he wrote that in 1997. Uh, basically, this was a quote that Diane took from the book stating that non-human intelligence or gods gave humans modern technology and the government covered it all up. Okay. So this is where Diane said, she's like, these are all the crazy men that Tyler reminds me of that are like really intelligent, but also maybe wackos don't really know. So then she starts to believe Tyler and, and this all happens when they meet again in Atlanta and they meet at the uh, American Academy of religion convention. So they met at a religious convention that Tyler showed up at. Uh, And he, and Tyler was with a man named Jeffrey Kripal, who uh, at one time they were all having lunch together. Jeffrey, Tyler and Diane and Tyler went to the bathroom and Jeffrey just started going off on Tyler about how he was an angel. And Diane was really intrigued by this because she was like, oh, an angel. What do you mean by that? And Jeffrey basically said, Tyler is part human and part extraterrestrial. And that's what the Bible has always defined as angels, people that descend from the heavens that aren't quite human, but have a lot of human characteristics about them. And so that's what Jeffrey was calling Tyler, was, was a human. He said, don't you notice how Tyler looks like he's 20 years younger than both of us, but he's actually 20 years older than us. That is kind of He has of a odd. full head of hair. He has a full head of hair. He's dressed top to bottom in Gucci. He has huge charisma. He befriends everyone he meets. He's just like this cool guy. He's the coolest guy, in fact. Right? Weird. So, And that's a pretty yeah, cool definition for angels, by the way. I thought so too. Yeah. So this is this is angels on earth. Um, uh, Jeffrey goes on to describe that uh, Tyler has a physical and a mental protocol to contact outer planet intelligence. He does this through like what we call yoga and meditation. And, and it's basically um, opening up your synapses so that information can be given to you and you can also send information out. Right. It's another form of transmission, technology, communication, all of that wrapped up into one. So going back to Tyler, this is not what Jeffrey has to say about him. But uh, during that convention, Tyler and, and Diane spoke more. And Tyler told Diane that he believes that DNA is a receptor and a transmitter, that humans are built like a satellite. Tyler said that to understand signals and transmit them, we have to tune our bodies, right? So we're all capable of doing this. We just have to tune ourselves into it. Uh, and and so Diane said, well, what's your secret? What what do you do to to make yourself into a human satellite, basically? And Tyler says, I think there's a lot of things that go into it. But some of the most important things are sleeping for eight hours a night. And then when he wakes up, he actually sleeps for an extra hour on top of that eighth hour. So he says that's really important to take another hour um, of awareness, uh, another like he calls it an, an aware sleep. Uh, so, so you're, you, you sleep for another hour after you wake up just as, I don't know, something about the way it, it tunes his 
<laughs> oh my God. I, I do that. You know, I do you're, that. You're making- <laughs> I do that in the worst way. I mean, I'll sleep way too much and then sleep more, but it's not consistent. I think the key there is to get right. like that juicy amount of sleep to treat it as medicine yeah. and then to, right. and then to maybe even get a little more. That's interesting. Like, like a hypnagogic I, I would state. say that the extra hour. Yeah. It's kind of like a, like a rest, a restful sleep where you're not actually sleeping. It's just like a cat nap <laughs> where your body is rejuvenating, but you're aware of it all happening. It's an now. instant nap. As soon as you wake up, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like what cats probably do. Yeah. Right. Instant nap. Oh, I'm awake. I'm going to sleep again. <laughs> right. Uh, I actually, I read somewhere that, um, REM is a 90 minute cycle. So you're, you're supposed to sleep in 90 minute increments. And I think the reason that people say, it, I mean, if you do the math and you do 90 minute increments, uh, the, the correct sleeping amount of time should be seven and a half hours. Uh, but I think people say eight hours because it usually takes them about 30 minutes to fall asleep. Um, so eight hours is a good amount, but if it takes you less than that to fall asleep, you should give yourself seven and a half hours. That's like the ultimate time to sleep. And then that extra hour would be preventing you from hitting REM, like a deep, a deep sleep state, but you're but you're still resting your body and you're rejuvenating cells and, you know, everything that sleep does to help your body survive and nourish. Itself. Right. So he says that sleeping is, is uh, the number one most important thing. Uh, that, and that also he doesn't ingest any alcohol, no coffee. He says that those liquids mess with the signal. And the only thing he drinks is water. So he says that in order to communicate this non-human intelligence, he has to be in the sun after waking up and he has to drink a tall glass of cold water and go out into the sun. He goes out onto his back porch because, again, this man is like retired, right? And <laughs> he, so he he doesn't have anywhere to be. No 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 plans, no schedule to be according to. He he just wakes up, has a glass of water after his hour of aware sleep, goes out into his back porch, sits in the sun, and he said that you'll know that the connection is made when thoughts are no longer your own. Thoughts that come out of a feeling and are validated by something that happens later like what we call a synchronicity, right? Sure. Um, so an example of that was he, he told Diane that he sent an email randomly to a friend named John, but he ended up sending it to the wrong John. And this was actually a John from his, uh, his government space program job that he had years ago. And John assumed that this random email from Tyler meant that he wanted to work with him again. And so John replied and he was like, hey, bro, long time no see. I actually have this new idea that I want to turn into a reality and I want to see if you would be a part of that with me. And he just sends him this one page uh, plan for pacemaker capacitors because he actually works in biomedical engineering. He's like, funny thing. He's like, funny thing. I have a memory of this working. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so John sends him this email about pacemaker capacitors and Tyler's like, well, okay, great. So they kick off this new project together for Tyler. um, And it was unintentional completely unintentional, but this actually helps him to continue making the connection to off-planet crafts um, because he realized highly charged capacitors, the same ones that we put in our hearts when we need pacemakers, are the are the are actually the way that off-planet crafts operate and the way that they can do so silently. That's his that's his idea anyway. That's what the So like an artificial machine is. that we put in our body. Help me make the mm-hmm. connection. What do you mean? An artificial machine so that we put in our body is the, connected to what? Yeah. The thing that makes that artificial machine tick is called a capacitor. Okay. And so Tyler. The had flux this capacitor. Image, this, <laughs> the flux capacitor. Exactly. So a capacitor. Yeah. 
he had this this image, this memory of capacitors. He was told that capacitors, highly, highly charged capacitors, are the ones that control off-planet crafts, that help operate these crafts, that are able to do what our rockets have not been able to accomplish yet. Our rockets, our planes, any kind of aerial craft that is made on Earth does not have this type of highly charged capacity. So he's saying that he was told after taking on this project by non-human intelligence that highly charged capacitors are the answer to off-planet crafts. So they're, what are they, Sid? They're, they're, they're like, they're, they're a component that's connected to the other side, kind of? There is the heart itself yes. on the other side? I don't think so. I don't think it had anything to do with the heart. I'm just saying that that's no, no, no. But I'm saying like the the, the, the engine. Okay, the 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 capacitor, the 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 uh-huh. thing on the craft the that is making yeah. it operate is connected to something that's beating and and powering on the other side. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Or no. Or maybe maybe, maybe I mean, it's a mechanical. That- maybe it's the mechanical component that's attached to the energy source. So the energy source is like the. The energy source that Lazar talks about, like the element 115 or, or the energy source that Lazar yeah. talks about, that element, and then and then the capacitor would be the mechanical components. Because the odd thing about what they say they've discovered about extraterrestrial crafts is that they just don't see a lot of components in there. They don't see a lot, they don't see right. a lot of parts in there. There's not a lot to it. Right. So maybe it is that simple. Yeah. I mean, I love that you're delving into that. Diane doesn't, she, she just kind of glosses over these stories. She She's still doesn't believe any of this. Detail about these <laughs> capacitors. <laughs> but, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around what that means, but you're totally putting it together in a sense that I can somewhat comprehend. But yeah, I think that's kind of the image that Tyler was getting. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, when, he, when he spoke to these intelligence. The craft, um, the crafts, the crazy thing about the crafts is that, like, according to Bob Lazar, is that they seem like they're all cut from one piece. So there's no, like, mm. rivets and segmented pieces to them. Like, there's very few components to the way this thing operates. They don't have decorations, right, like just bent. decals, engine pieces, right. uh, like, controls. Yeah. There's not, like, a whole lot going on there. So, right. it, but there is an energy source. There has to be. And I mean, yeah. I don't know if there has to be, because I mean, there could be vehicles that they're, they're controlling. There could be the kind of vehicles that you control with just your mind powers as a higher being and you materialize right. on earth. And then there could be like, like physical vehicles. Um, so, so yeah, anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll Very definitely, we'll definitely get back to what, what, what could be inside a UFO in the future. But um, so he, so he gets this inspiration and he's sort of on this journey of continuing to connect it to uh, extra dimensional or extraterrestrial beings. Yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 He, there's a quote from him that Diane uh, writes in the book that says um, while, while he's listening, right. To, um, to this non-human intelligence, he says, Diane, to make the right call, you have to be in tune with the environment. You must tune your DNA to receive signals, and then you have to pay attention, and then you have to act on it. I think this is part of why it's so important to start a synchronicity journal, because this is what yeah. gets you to start paying attention to the signs of the universe, where you're, yeah. you're, you're rolling down the highway of your life, and you're ignoring all the signs all the time. 
We're not spiritual yeah. beings because mm-hmm. we're we're ignoring all the signs. We're just trying to get to the 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 truck stop so we can take a piss. You know, we need to be more aware and more more loving and and absorbent of the little things around us so you can act on them. Um, so somebody like this is, is, and you know what you're, you, this, somebody like this is, they keep taking these challenging jobs where they continue to have to think creatively. You know, the, the, the difficult thing about creative tasks is that you have to give you, you have to sign up for them. You have to do them. You have to challenge yourself so that you can have these moments, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so far he's just, he's gotten these jobs that have sort of been parallel with his own personal journey of, of extraterrestrial research, but none of them have been directly related to the phenomenon. No. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think they, they still, it, it's a way for him to be like, I, I want to help the humanity and, and how can I use my brain to do good? Even though he is using his brain as what he thinks being information sent to him from other other planets. He's acting like a channel and he's he's working himself as a channel. Uh and that yeah. follows the logic of, of what you said. Like once once uh once you're aware they're aware. Exactly. Yeah. So Diane actually mentions uh another great quote that I want to bring up now. Her name is uh Carrie Mollis. She was the winner of the Nobel Prize in 1993 for creating a polymerase chain reaction. Anyway, she had an autonomous experience with UFO encounters, and her quote was uh, about creativity. She said, creativity is when you try to figure something out and something else intrudes until you give in, and it turns out to be exactly what you were looking for. (laughs) So basically, this is not an accident. It's inevitable, but it's also unexpected, and that's what creativity is, and I I love that. I think that's a great explanation for that. A lot Um, of beautiful sort of explanations for creativity. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Diane goes on to say, um, uh, she starts talking about the download experience, which I don't know if you know, you're familiar with that term. Uh, But there's a man named Grant Cameron who claimed to have a download experience. Uh, Basically, he, he, he claims that creativity is not about having a high IQ. It's about the ability to tap into non local intelligence. He wanted to write this book about disclosure by alien forces that humans are not alone, but he had this download experience from non-local intelligence and decided to write about the download experience instead after being contacted. So I'm sure out there you can find a book by Grant Cameron if you're interested about the download experience. Um, he said that there is a connection to, to aliens and any type of creation, especially music, um, which I think goes back to what you were saying about Post Malone and, and Joe Rogan's uh, podcast. Sure, um, sure. Where uh, Grant claims that when people are being creative, their self-consciousness is turned down. They're less personally aware of, you know, themselves. And they're kind of just listening and, and letting ideas come to them instead of judging those ideas and like being self-conscious that's, and aware. That's why it's such a beautiful feeling when you're playing music because you really, totally. or, or being creative because you really mm-hmm. get to detach from all the nonsense you're worrying about all the time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, mm-hmm. Even your personal identity takes a, takes a back seat. Yeah. Even in music, that can be difficult though. I, I know myself as a musician, I'm constantly uh, judging myself and, and closing down my, my creativity because I'm like, oh, this is not good enough. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, I'm not, I'm not playing well enough, you know, yada, yada. So it, in all sorts of forms, it, that, that is definitely a thing. And you have to let that go 
to really let yourself be open and creative and really appreciate music for what it is. It's different sides of the brain that are competing, different parts of us that are competing and really like they shouldn't be competing. Diane actually mentions this. It's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain that ignites during a, uh, a daydream. Or like if you're being hypnotized, it's, it's, the, it's the place in your brain where you lose sense of time and location. This is also the part of the brain that um, controls your memory. It also helps with switching attention spans. Um, this is also the part of the brain that maintains rules, like your own personal rules. They're all controlled by this part of the brain. Um, so Tyler uses this process. He uses this part of his brain because he says it works. He, he talks about um, that smart room that I told you that he was hired to sit in and just think. Um, th- this is a smart room where the best scientists and freedom thinkers in the world go in and they think and they get paid to think. And no one laughs. No one judges. There's actually um, a great example that Diane brought up. She said they could they could bring up a purple unicorn flying through space on a pickle and no one would laugh. Um, so this is the room where where Tyler and and the best scientists and freedom thinkers in the world dream the impossible. He said it's it's also apparently where the iPhone was created? Question mark. Don't know about that. <laughs> but listen, so now we're yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, in the a lot desert. of people, a lot of people think that this uh, all the, this this big cell phone wave of technology has something to do with reverse engineered alien technology. But I mean, how would we ever know? Um, That's amazing that you say maybe. that because Diane actually brings that up. She mentions, um, have you seen the opening? scene from 2001 space odyssey yes totally so do you do you remember when they they uh they show those those uh uh primates and well that's what i was kind of channeling with our episode diddy with our episode song i was thinking about that scene which is strange really um but yeah yeah i remember the i remember the primates and the obelisk yeah right yeah it's the monolith um so that that's the monolith that's something that Arthur C. Clarke wrote, wrote the book that this movie is based off of. Um, but it's really creepy because it looks like a freaking iPhone. And basically that was the, a, 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 a way of non-human intelligence telling the primates that if they want their land, they should take it. And, you know, it, without any words or anything happening on the movie screen, we knew that that monolith was telling those, those primates to pick up a bone and use it as a weapon, right? So that was something that they didn't have the intelligence on their own to do, but they were given that idea by the monolith, which is really creepy to think about. Yeah, it's amazing that that scene works so well because that could have yeah. easily been ridiculous. I mean, I think they totally. probably tried to replicate that in so many ways, but it is such a mysterious and powerful um, scene, especially the way yeah. it fades out constantly and shows you these yep. different moments where they where they where they. Apes are noticing different things. Um, right. I want to read the book. Um, and I think that, you know, that book was written in conjunction. It was written with, a, in a collaboration with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. So now we're back at the desert. Okay. So we took this huge tangent to learn about who Tyler is and why he thinks the way he does. And now we don't think that he's like a teenage pimply redheaded boy, right? Who's just bringing these people out into the desert for a snuff film. We know who Tyler is. Now. He's had he's had a lot of a lot of experiences. Yeah. Lived quite the life. But looks 20 years younger than everyone. <laughs> because he's an angel. Exactly. Yeah. Angel. Yep. Um, so the uh James and Diane are given these metal detectors by Tyler that were programmed to only find the specific type 
of metal that they're looking for from this artifact, um, from this craft that that landed, the, the artifacts that they're looking for um, that are non-human intelligence. So they use this programmed metal detector and they start going around and they're like climbing up these rocks and going in between. And in one of these crevices, James' metal detector starts going off. So they start pulling all these rocks out and they find this small metallic artifact. And they're like, wow, this this is something. This is not a tin can. And they, they come back together at the end of the day. And it turns out Tyler found one that looks very similar. It's another tiny metallic artifact, piece of the crash landing site that they think. Um, so listen to this. They put their artifacts into their carry-ons. And James and Diane, they head back home. They, they separate their paths. And as they're going through TSA, um, James put his carry-on up on the, the conveyor belt. And it goes through. And all of a sudden, it stops. And all the TSA security guards are looking around because their their whole system, all the all the like uh, digital interface and you know all the detectors and things, everything shuts down. It just goes black. All their screens Whoa. go black, and the whole security line there just stops. And everyone's like, "Uh." And James and Diane. Pasolka, she 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 claims that this happened. Yeah, she said that this happened. Yeah, so she. She didn't wow. have the artifact in her carry-on, so she went through perfectly fine. And then when James went through with his carry-on where the artifact was, it shut down the whole conveyor belt of the TSA line. And so they, they all like look around. They're trying to act inconspicuous. And uh, one of the guards goes over and he resets the machine and it turns back on. They pull James to the side. They look through his whole thing. They see the artifact. They didn't think much of it. They're just like, oh, it's like a piece of metal. It probably set off our machine. And James had a full search, but he finally got through and he was like sweating bullets. He thought for sure that this artifact was going to be taken from him. And he was like, oh, my God, he thought it was going to be confiscated and that he was going to be detained. And uh, after they got through and they were like, whew, relieved, they go sit down at their at their um, flight location and they're, they just take a breather. And they're like, wow, that was insane. That, that has to mean something, right? That this like this artifact has some form of radiation in it that shut off every machine in the TSA line that day. Well, we've, we, we know stories of crafts that have shut down cars, shut down nuclear bases. Imagine one piece, one piece shuts everything off at an airport. Right. What, what is it about that piece? What kind of a field is it generating? Exactly. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) Awesome. Right. Yeah. So, um, so James mentions one. that this, I know I want one too. James mentions that this is basically, he calls it a donation from non-human intelligence. It's something that is kind of given to us to, for, for a purpose that if the right person finds it, that they can use reverse technology to discover how it's created and how to make more of this high tech, you know, technology. Um, so then Diane takes another turn point here and she goes into a whole chapter about well, here's how we met James. <laughs> so we met Tyler already. Are you ready to meet James? Oh my God, I'm I'm scared. What <laughs> what kind of a freaking James was one of the first members of the Jurassic Park Island that was for <laughs> real. Like where did where did James come from? I wonder. Actually, fun fact, just to start, James actually uh, told Diane that one time he was at a bar and he slow danced with Katy Perry before she was famous. <laughs> So that is kind of a fun fact there. Um, Oh, that is fun. But James James was a scientist who was out as an experiencer, right? So he was a public ufologist. He held a chair in molecular biology. He was a successful inventor. 
he pushed the boundaries in biotechnology, and he was also having to be a Silicon Valley millionaire. Okay, so this is a guy who has a lot of money. He's smart. He's intelligent. He is well known for what he does, and he's out. His his information is public. I picture James as like the cool boy, right? Like just has like the most expensive pair of sunglasses on, and has like a jacket tied around his waist, and he like wears Birkenstock sandals. <laughs> and he gets yeah, he's not he's not in he's not in Gucci like Tyler is, but he's <laughs> right. he's he's a, he's obnoxiously like shiny and, and hippie shiny. looking at the same time. Yes. And Diane actually refers to him also being an angel. He's, you know, in a way. So she, these are two angels that Diane knows now. Um, so here's a little bit about James and his encounters that he's had since childhood. Um, he said that when he was little, uh, that little people would visit him at his bed at night. He would be completely awake, but he would be fully paralyzed. And he wasn't able to move, which is something that we've talked about in prior episodes where when you have an experience with these non-human beings, they tend to be capable of paralyzing you and you, you're aware of everything, but you can't do anything about it, right? But this also crosses over the path of sleep paralysis, which can be uh, as a result of like nightmares and stuff where your body is frozen in the nightmare and you can't do anything about it, but it's sometimes hard to differentiate from reality. So this is just James's experience from a childhood, uh, uh, from his childhood. He had little people visiting him in his bed at night. And uh, another example was he he used to be a newspaper delivery boy. And one time he took a shortcut through this forest while delivering papers um, because he was going to be late. So he like had to take this shortcut through the forest. And he saw this strange light that was so bright. It was as bright as the sun. And it, sur- it was surrounded by dark in the forest. And it, it appeared in front of him for about 10 seconds. And it was just glowing like a piece of plasma, right? And he never said anything about it, but it was like that. And he... He said, I will never, ever go into that forest ever again. He was terrified, right? So it wasn't like a sense of calm or whatever. He was petrified by it. Um, and then the encounter just started happening again in his, uh, in his 30s. He said that uh, one time he saw a smoky, translucent, tall, thin figure of a man standing by his bed um, that told him to go to sleep. And he did. <laughs> James, after he saw this smoky, translucent, tall, thin figure, he decided that he would always keep the windows closed at night. And he had a phobia of open windows. He um, actually, once he drew a face on his cousin's window to prank her. And uh, instead of being scared, she came up to James and she said, how did you know? And he was like, what do you mean? And apparently she had been seeing this face in her window uh, at night in her room. And he drew the exact face that she had been seeing um, at night. So, ooh, gave me chills <laughs> thinking about. But so you can tell that yeah. like his family, you know, this is his cousin who who's also maybe experiencing these weird night visions of people. and Well, things. some of these visitations, they follow family lines. Right. So I mean, they're in, they're interested in your DNA or yes. your family line. Maybe maybe certain people do have these angelic receptors. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's it's about their genes and their makeup and themselves. Also, yeah. the, you know how how as uh, Tyler said, how in tune they are as a human satellite. Like whether they're giving off those wavelengths to m- make these new non-human intelligence want to contact them back. You know. So. Sure. Totally. Um, his book encounter, James. James had a book encounter, um, and his was actually the John Mack book, Abduction. 
Um, it described night visitors who paralyzed people and they spoke to you telepathically. He became obsessed. This was basically describing his entire life, his entire childhood and growing up and everything he had seen. So he became obsessed with this idea and he, he started trying to find other people who had similar experiences. And he did so by outing himself publicly as an experiencer, right? So this is, this is why he's a, a public person who's not in the invisible college or anything. Um, we should find his name. Yeah, I wonder what his name is. Yeah, yeah. But I guess Basulka doesn't tell us, right? No, she just says it's James. I mean, his name could be James. I don't know. Yeah, maybe we could yeah. find out. Um, but basically, so when he outed himself and, and told the the internet world of his experiences, um, this this is something that Diane said could prove dangerous to the government. Uh, you know, the government. They love to cover things up. And so... Uh, she brings up an, an example of the Durant report, which is um, from the 1953 Robinson, Robertson panel. Uh, this whole report was basically covered up by the government. And uh, there's we don't know what it was about now, but um, this this has this directly correlates with um, what I was talking about in UFOs when the government was pr um, providing training and debunking to sit in place of uh this like Durant report and it's where the government was paying mainstream media to make documentaries of inadequate information to stop the society from like freaking out and whatever. So this, this Diane even mentions that Disney was one of the mainstream media outlets that was contacted to make these documentaries. And I remember we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Basically Jane, James outed himself to reach out to other public ufologists and, uh, uh, he he wanted he wanted he was more interested in in what they had to say and their experiences and one one of the public ufologists contacted him about an unearthly artifact um, that they wanted him to examine and so he did and he used his his prior research and information to publicly rule out that this was not unearthly and that it was something that was man made. Um, and this actually him ruling this out publicly and saying that it, it was debunked, uh, got the attention of, of scientists who compared his work to punked, which is basically like, I, I don't know if you know the show from MTV, but it's, uh, of course I remember that when show, you're publicly yeah. humiliated on television. Yeah. So this was an insult to, to James, right? He was, he was bummed out by this. Oh, I see. It was like science. It's like the scientist punked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the last thing we need in the UFO community. So but basically, it is, it they called James to... a hoax, and and they were like, "Nah." Well, why would they call him a hoax if he's doing what they want, which is to debunk stuff? Maybe because this was an artifact that previously hadn't been able to be proven as human made, and he just went out and said, "This is human made." John Keel talks about how bizarre it is that a lot of the materials, quote unquote, from spacecraft, maybe even the spacecraft themselves, can often be like nonsense. Like sometimes they might be these super layered, like nanotechnology, like not of this earth materials. Other times it's just like junk from the atmosphere. Yeah. So like yeah. where it almost seems like it comes from a cosmic joker. But I, I happen to think that Maybe sometimes when they're materializing in our reality, they're just using our stuff. And, and that kind of re that reminds me of that Time Storms story where that uh, family in Australia is in, is in a car and they get they get doused with this uh, with this powder. And it turns out to be earthly materials. Also, it's like oh. sometimes maybe this energy is just using our physical reality 
to manifest itself. Yeah, that's know? interesting. Huh. That's a good point. But poor. So, so James had a, I mean, James sounds like he was on a wacky ride once he started to admit publicly that he was involved with this stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Which I think, I think sometimes people just make the choice to, to, to be super transparent about it, even though they're going to get ridiculed, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. They so go after, down that road. Yeah. After that comment of uh, Punk came out, he was contacted by two men in black suits who wanted to talk more about that artifact that he had just debunked. They wanted to know how he determined it was made on Earth. They were like, James, why did you get involved? What else do you know? So he thought he was being punked. He thought that someone sent these two people to like freak him out. And so he was kind of taking it as a joke and just kind of laughing at them and being like, whatever. It turns out that these were just two men who were also interested in the same thing that James was. And they were they were private ufologists who were not, you know, advertising who they were publicly. They were not the men in black, which I originally thought when I was reading. I was like, what? These two men in black suits? Huh? So they they ended up opening a lab together. And uh, this was the first time that Pasulka actually met James. Um, he, it was at a presentation that he and his lab were studying. Um, and he basically claims UFOs exist. We know that, um, there have been aerial sightings, that there's been communication on radar, that there have been beams of light, which Diane refers to on a biblical level and says, you know, we talk about beams of light all the time in, uh, in, in the Bible. And usually when these heavenly figures come down, they're on some sort of disc or globe that they're like standing on, right? That they descend from the heavens on. So uh, in the same way that UFOs exist, uh, Diane is confirming that uh, these visitations in the Bible exist as well, (laughs) which no one can really prove, right? But it's in the Bible. There are religious paintings that show this, Yeah, which is the craziest thing about religious art that when you see, when you visually see Mm -hmm depictions of this phenomenon yeah know? i've never really thought about the, the the disc and the globe that's like underneath jesus um in several depictions of him like coming down from the heavens but that totally is a comparable reference to what we now know as like modern ufos right so yeah it's really interesting to yeah. think about um, it's something we kind of have to come to terms with you know with this like once we once you realize that this phenomenon is real and that human beings have been interacting with it since at least the Egyptian era, yeah. probably way beyond that. I mean, if um, unless they really did have something to do with creating us in the first <laughs> place. And by they, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different beings involved in the story, but uh, it just, you have to think about that. You have to think about how, how often they were there, you know, right. how, when they showed up and, how they how they showed up, what form they took, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, Jesus might not necessarily have been an alien, but at the same time, you know, if if he's a if he's this gifted individual who's communicating with with the other side somehow, you know, if if there are if there are beings that are guiding us, like what, what what's the interaction there, and you know, are they are they the same beings? that interact with different religions? Does right. each religion essentially have its own beings? Um, you know, are, are we trying to be guided towards the same the same place, you know, in the same way that religions seem to be similar? Right. Are we, are we being, have, have we been guided all along to the idea that, to where we are now with, with UFOs being the new religion, essentially? Yeah. Um, 
I love that. Are you we put being that guided in a great to this <laughs> cosmic road? Yeah, I mean, have we have we gotten to a place where where we can uh, you know embrace the idea of uh, having alien space brothers and sisters and and we're all part of this spiritual space story, brothers. You know? Uh, James said, um, basically during his lab that Pasolka was attending, he said that, um, once the brain recognize, sorry, once the brain acknowledges a recognition, it changes the way it functions physiologically. Basically he's defining gene structures, um, that are, that underlie the ability to receive new information, uh, that scientists can track this in brain history from the very moment when a change occurs in the brain and when it makes up then all, all forms all new ideas uh, from thence on. This is something that that scientists can track. And so James wanted the whole point of this lab was that James wanted to develop an uh, uh, an ability for humans to be able to say no to any extraterrestrial experience. That it would be more of a consent driven opportunity. That if they knew they were being contacted, they could shut it off or they could invite it in. Right. It's really hard wow, to wrap my that's... head around. <laughs> So what, wait, so what is this method or or how does it work? This is just what Diane said that he was talking about in his lab. She doesn't go into any details about how it works. You're going to have to ask James if you want to know more. So on, on the one hand, uh, we have Tyler who is in, is, was teaching us, uh, indirectly through Diane, uh, or at least, you know, being like, this is how you invite them in. On the other hand, you have James who's like, well, I, they've been in my head since I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, we need to have a way to be like, listen, dudes, like we thank you so much, but yeah. you got to be slow with us. You got to right. take it slow with us. Right. Exactly. You know? yeah, or, yeah. or, you know, some people don't want to be involved, which unfortunately, I don't know if some people have the choice, you know, right. if we're if we're just cat, if we're just cattle to some of them, because it sounds like some entities are super respectful and beautiful and really do have an elegant way of presenting themselves, mm-hmm. which, which I think you, you know, which ones are like that because they have this way of presenting themselves. They yeah. want to inspire you. They don't want to scare you, you know, but then you have other beings that are, you know, capturing us like cattle, you know? Yeah, totally. 100%. So James was having these anomalous experiences that he couldn't control and he didn't like them. He wasn't enjoying them. He wasn't getting anything positive out of them. So this was his his whole reason for, for creating the lab and, and starting the research was um, he said that oftentimes we are visited without a choice. Uh, so he wanted to, he, he publicly outed himself to locate families who have this dominant trait of being um, contacted. And he wanted to study them. Um, it's something that he referred wow. to as the sense, which I think you can put that together, you know, in the same way that like the sixth sense is being able to talk to spirits of the deceased. This is an, another sense, a precognitive ability, an anomalous con- cognition to uh, being connected with non-human intelligence that aren't necessarily spirits. They're something other than spirits. And so, yeah, James James added himself to try to get families in to do more research on them personally and uh, see if he could determine the dominant trait in these families. And the government isn't trying to shut him down well, because I'm, exactly, I'm almost yeah. certain— I'm almost certain that the government has a way to find out who these people are also. I mean, and, there's no way that they're not keeping track of, of who's on this list right, of right. people who get abducted. They've, they've, but that's very interesting. Can, can we figure out which genes there are, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. It's interesting. It, it's wanting to take control over this relationship a little bit. Yeah, but he brings it down to a molecular level, which I think is really interesting. And I think that the reason Diane told us this is because she um, invites James to come on this trip with her so that she can basically introduce him to Tyler, who is someone who's been working on a molecular level and uses these con- contact with non-human intelligence to do good for the world. And so he also has the dominant trait, obviously, this sense, this precognitive ability. Um, and so she thinks it's important. It's her duty to introduce these two people so that they can get to know each other and maybe learn from each other about uh, more, more about this anomalous cognitive ability. So the the last thing about this is that James said that when he is solving a problem in a very similar way to Tyler, he basically comes up with ideas and how they could solve the problem without like, you know, experimenting with them or anything. He just comes up with a bunch of ideas. And then he this is exactly what he said to Diane. He when he sleeps at night, he lets the little elves think for him. And that's what he referred to them as. And basically, these are just like little. Little versions of himself that are, are just helping him think and come up with better solutions to his problems overnight. And this is actually um, a phenomenon that a lot of scientists relate to that they, um, that they explain that the way that they learn is uh, they'll read a book or that, you know, I I do this too. I'll, I'll, I'll play a piece of music and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be very good at it the first time I play it, but then I sleep on it. And and you want to do it close to when you're going to sleep because there's something that happens in the brain overnight or while the body is resting and rejuvenating that can help you actually learn more. And the next morning, you'll either have the answer that you're looking for, or suddenly you'll be able to play that piano piece that you were having trouble with the night before. It's 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 something that I, I can't even explain on, on any, you know, verbal level. But that was my connection to this when James was explaining this feeling. And I think a lot of people That's- experience that without connecting it to non-human That's really powerful, yeah. SIDS. And <laughs> and let's let's you know, let's let it be known. If, if you're listening to this, like we all have to start to believe and rest, and we have to start to believe that our bodies have the resources to tap into all the places that we want to go. We don't have to stay up late, we don't have to drink a ton of caffeine, take a lot of drugs, we don't have to push ourselves in these violent places physically where, where, where our memory gets chopped up and our spirit gets chopped up, you know, you need to, you need to believe in, in rest, you know, believe in, in all of these things that, that are sort of counterintuitive to what we, what we believe, what we understand, which, which, you know, like being in a sauna, being in a a sensory deprivation chamber, being in a meditative state, you know, or just like you're saying, like these guys aren't even saying to all that stuff. They're just saying, when you go to bed, take a moment. Yeah. You know, I go to bed with the TV on because I'm so afraid sometimes of just letting myself relax. Your own and thoughts. I get, I get into these, yeah, I get into these cycles where I need to go to bed with the television on. And, you know, I, I'm going to practice this as well. You know, take a moment. Yeah. I really like that. I do too. And I think actually in a beautiful way, this pandemic and the quarantine has helped me be more aware of my own consciousness uh, in, in, the, in the sense that I can, I can be alone with my thoughts and not be afraid of them and not be worried that like some, some crazy you know, idea is going to pop in my head that's going to send me into a depri- deprivation of, or a depressed spiral. <laughs> that's beautiful, Sids, because I think a lot of people have been dealing with the shock and the terror 
and the tears of being alone and being afraid and, and go jumping from their phone to the TV, to the PlayStation, yeah. to the what have you. You mean from like distraction having, to distraction? Yeah, like we're not, you know, we're, we're not allowing ourselves to feel, but we've had to feel, yeah. you know, all of us have had to feel more during all of this than we normally would have because yep. normally we'd be out running errands and doing all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So guys, I'm going to wrap this up for you. I'm going to finish up the story about the desert. Uh, Diane finally finishes like the last of the desert story <laughs> and, uh, and we'll save part two for next time because this is, this is just a huge book. There's too much to cover in, in one, in one episode. So. Tyler told James and Diane as they were heading out with their artifacts, uh, they passed this location of land. And he actually points out this was where the crash of 1947 happened in Roswell, New Mexico. So they, they did end up being very, very close to the crash, but it wasn't quite the location that he brought them to. Um, and he started telling them about some stories about the, the Roswell site, the Roswell location that um, I don't know if they already knew or if you already knew. Um, but he said that when people go out to this location and look for artifacts, that it typically leads them to fights. They, they fight with each other for no reason. There's no reasoning as to why they're fighting, and they're never able to recall what the fight was about after they leave. And so he thought that was very interesting to, you know, just a little factoid. Some sort of a dissonant energy around that site. You know, and I'd often heard that there are two crash landings that are key in that time period. One being the Roswell site, which may be extraterrestrials yeah. or beings from the future. Um, or And there's another site that was that was key also. So this, this maybe is the other site or one of the other yeah. sites. These, these, these beautiful aliens are, are uh, <laughs> crashing left and right throughout our history. Maybe on, right. on purpose Oof. or not, but... Yeah. So Goodness. Diane concludes about the trip to New Mexico that both Tyler and James, as we know now too, they're both credible people um, who have had crazy experiences in their lives. And on some level or another, they're able to communicate more than the regular human being knows that they're capable of doing so. Um, she compares their experiences to witnesses or what we call testaments in the Bible. You know, the people who wrote in the Bible, the saints, the apostles, um, these were all people who witnessed and testified against these incredulous events that were happening and that the Bible had messengers or, you know, like I said, apostles um, who were, they were never able to explain what they saw, but they, this is something that the Bible referred to as what we know as a miracle, right? So this is, this is what she believes Tyler and James are to the, 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 the religion of UFOs and technology. Um, that this New Mexico location functioned, again, as a sacred site for the religion of technology, and that this was ground zero. Um, and at first, experiencers are always trying to disprove what they see. So this, this, is, this wasn't easy for James or for Tyler to admit that, you know, whatever they were seeing out here and that these artifacts very well could be extraterrestrial. This is not something that people want to go out and be like, oh, yeah, it's an alien, because that's it's, it's a very snafu thing to admit, you know? So... Everyone wants to find a reason to disprove what they might find and, and to make it earthly or, or, or something familiar um, that's less terrifying in our, in our minds. Yeah, I mean, it's part of yeah. that whole taboo we yeah. talked about last right. episode, so, you know, un, unable, unable to deal with exactly. the reality of this. Yeah, so Diane leaves us with a, a, little, a little treat from um, the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Samuel. Uh, this is a little story 
where Samuel one night hears his name in his sleep repeatedly. And he assumes that it's his, his teacher who he lives with, but it turns out not to be. And after the third time it happens, he declares it's a sign from God. So it's something, it's something comparable in that sense that um, when James and Tyler found these artifacts, of course, they, 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 they would love to discover something that like the, the human race has yet to discover. But initially, they want to be able to disprove it and be like, oh, no, it's just another piece of material from a radiation plant 10 miles away, you know, so. Well, it's like it's like the UFO, uh, the UFO sort of uh, directives that we read about last time, which is like, you know, the first thing you need to do is make sure that you do your due diligence and rule out the all the right. earthly possibilities. I mean, it's just something that if you're a responsible person, yeah. you kind of have to do. Um, but at the same time, you have these these godly like signs that are coming through our reality. And it's like, listen, listen to us. We're trying to communicate yeah. with you. So I'm going to leave you with this last uh, little metaphor that Diane brought up. Um, and th- this is great. I think this is so funny. This is a great little uh, metaphor. Um, this is from a book written by Chris Chabri and Dan Simons called The Invisible Gorilla and Other Ways Our Perceptions Deceive Us. Long ass title. But uh, basically, she brings up a story um, in the book about where two people are told to pass this basketball. And, and the person who tells them to pass the basketball is doing the scientific experiment. And he goes, I want you to count your passes and, and you have to count them accurately. OK, so they're, they're passing the basketball and they're going back and forth and they're counting out loud to each other. And they're really focused on their task. And um, uh, in the background, a man in a gorilla suit passes through <laughs> through the basketball court right by the two people passing their balls. And at the end of the experiment, um, the the scientist asked them, did you guys see the gorilla? And they're both like, what? No, they missed it because they were com- they were so focused on their own task that they didn't even see what was right in front of their eyes. Um, and this is a great metaphor for like what, what you see is what you believe. And if you didn't see it, did it really happen? Um, and, and, you know, behaviors like this will, will determine the way that you behave in the future to... Uh, to those exact same instances. So I thought that was really beautiful <laughs> little metaphor. <laughs> that is beautiful. I mean, I, I think about that a lot when it comes to UFOs, like how much of it is some sort of an optical illusion that if you're, if you're too trapped in your own ways yeah. of thinking and reality, yeah. you can't see it. it you're not being, you, you, it doesn't, it doesn't allow you exactly. to see it, you know? Um, yep. <laughs> wow. So yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it today. Very, and, uh, very nice. So give me a taste of where this goes from here. Because we have this, she has this relationship with Jack Ballet. She has this relationship mm-hmm. with James, with Tyler. Where does the rest right. of this So actually, this is a great halfway point because now we've talked about that whole story that happened at the very beginning of being blindfolded in the desert. And that has come to an end. And we, we learned who James and Tyler are and how important they are in Diane's uh, research for this six-year study that she went through. The next half of the book is actually um, a little bit more of case studies that we've been used to, where where it's it's very like uh, specific situations and how um, she awesome. compares them to biblical references. So it's very interesting in that sense, um, but it kind of takes a different route for the second half of the book. Um, it's less, it's less story. Like, like, like I said, the Ooh. book was very like, like me reading a story and now it's like, Oh, okay. We're back into the researcher mind of just like, you know, don't, um, notating scientific research and, and the outcomes. 
Well, it sounds it sounds like it's such an interesting book because part of it's like the mm-hmm. great American novel yeah. starring <laughs> Diane Pasolka. And the other part, the other part is like the the, right. the nitty-gritty case studies like right. Time Storms and uh you yep. know, any any number of books. But case studies are awesome to cover. They're they're the freaking best. Um and those are those are the tasty bits our listeners yeah. will be excited. I will say Posoka is a great to, writer, though. So easy to read, and it's easy to stay engaged the whole time. And she was like this for the second half of the book as well. Um, but she loves her tangents. She loves to like uh, like tell you a story and then not explain the outcome, but totally go off onto a different side and be like, "Well, here's how I saw it, and here's how it refers to the Bible, and then we'll go back to the story and we'll finish it out." So like she. She writes like that, which is, it's very nonlinear and, and great in a sense, but it's also, it hops all over the place. Uh, <laughs> I want to read it. Yeah. It sounds really great. It sounds mm-hmm. really great. What a great title. Yeah, American I love that. Cosmic. Yep, yep, yep. You know, so I can give you guys great, a, great a couple title. little tidbits of what you're going to hear in the next episode. We're going to start off with uh, Troubles in the Field. The war is virtual, but the blood is real. So we'll start with that. And then uh, some of the headlines I'll just repeat from today that we didn't get covered yet. And that includes saints, mystics, or both, synchronicities in the UFO event, Jacques Vallée and the internet, from atheist to believer, and levitation at the Vatican. So stay tuned. That's it for today's feast. Thank you for dining with us. Hold your cosmic appetites for next time. And reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 